Well, church, we are in the book of Matthew. This is the last sermon in this section of Matthew. Next week, we start 1 Peter. But we're in Matthew, the, the parables of Jesus, this parable, the parable of the weeds. So I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 13 today. The sermon guide or worship guide has this passage. It's the parable of the weeds, starting in verse 34 of Matthew 13. Hear the scripture. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers. Gather the weeds first, and then bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And then down in verse 36, his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, I, once again, I said this a couple of times, that, that a, a parable is a searing, stabbing truth with one central message. That if you're a listener and you hear the parable, you go, ah, oh, I, I, I kind of get it. I, I, I kind of get it. So in this particular parable, this one stabbing truth is this. There is an eternity. There is a day of judgment. Therefore, we should live with eternity in view, with an eternal mindset. There's an eternity. Therefore, live with an eternal mindset. Now, when I read this in context, I think that the disciples are hearing these words and, and really, the disciples are, in a sense, getting prepared to go into a very difficult time. They're in the middle of a difficult time. They're kind of in an uphill slog. They're going up and down, but, but it's, it's, it's tough. It's just in some of the things that Christ has said. And with all of these things, there's a promise, but I'm just going to read the hard things. And this is what they heard. Chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And that happened in the book of Acts. He was preparing them. This is going to happen. Difficult times. Or he says again in chapter 10, verse 24, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master, if they have called the head of the household Beelzebub, referring to Jesus, then what in the world will they say about those of his household? Difficult words. They call Jesus Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. What will they say about his followers? Or same chapter, verse 34 to 36. Do not think, Christ says, that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Difficult, difficult words. Or chapter 11, verse 24, he says to this Jewish audience who were very thankful for their Jewish heritage and, and, and the fact that God had chosen them and brought Messiah, Messiah in through the Jewish nation. And Capernaum was a place of great privilege in the Jewish nation. But Jesus says this, he says, I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for Capernaum. Now, Sodom is, is, is shorthand for a place of utter depravity. And you're going, are you kidding me? And in the midst of all of this, we have a historical backflash in chapter 14. Because in John, excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, one of the rock stars of their age, one of their heroes of these men, John the Baptist is imprisoned. And imprisoned with deep distress, he sends his disciples out and says, go ask Jesus the teacher, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? And Jesus basically responds by saying, I am the Messiah. But John is still in prison. And John's in prison because in that particular situation, Herod the Great had three boys. His kingdom was divided among three boys. One was Herod Antipas, one was Philip. And, and, and Herod Antipas is ruling this part of the world. And Herod Antipas has his half-brother Philip, who's married to a woman that he wants to be his wife, even though he's married to somebody else. Her name is Herodias. And so through some seductive alliances, she leaves her husband and marries her husband's half-brother. And John the Baptist says, you can't do that. This is not right. And so Herodias gets upset, the wife who's he's speaking against, and so they put him in prison. <clears throat> but John is in prison. He's the hero of the country, and, and really Herod Antipas is afraid to do anything to him. So he just kind of keeps him in prison. And in Mark 6, it says he brings him out occasionally and lets John the Baptist preach, and he heard him gladly, but he was perplexed. The reason he heard him in a perplexed fashion is every sermon that John the Baptist preached in front of Herod Antipas ended with this application statement, you should not be married to your brother's wife. Well, that, that, that's not a real popular message. Every, every message has that. And, and, and so that's what he said, and, and he's in prison. And then the Bible tells us that, that Herod had a birthday, and he brought in all of his buddies, his cronies, and there was a daughter of Herodias from a previous marriage named Salome or Salome. And she was probably a late teenager. And her stepdad says to her, uh, 
Will you please entertain us with a dance? Probably a very seductive dance in front of all his cronies. And she says, no. And he says, I'll tell you what. I don't be embarrassed. I'll give you up to half my kingdom if you just dance for us. And so Salome, by the word, we know her name is Salome. We think from a historian named Josephus. So if you're pregnant and you have a girl, Salome is not a good name. Don't, don't go there. Salome, Jezebel, both not good names, biblically speaking. Anyway, so Salome dances, and everybody's thrilled. And Herod looks at her and says, what do you want? And she goes, I don't know. So she asks her mom. She says, Mama, what should I ask for? She says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, which, you know, that's what all young girls want on their 18th birthday. And so John the Baptist is beheaded. They bring her his head on a platter. And in a very tender statement in the Bible, it says that John the Baptist's disciples went and wrapped his body in the sheet and buried him with no head. So you're a disciple, and you're saying, he said, this is a man who spoke righteous standards. This is the forerunner. This is the one who Jesus says is the Elijah who was to come. And, 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 and some wicked man cut his head off because he had a sensuous dance from a young woman. That's discouraging. That's disheartening. And so in, in the midst of this, I think Christ is saying, how do you stay by the stuff? How, how do you keep going uphill in the uphill slug? And I, I think it's, it's this, there is an eternity lived with an eternal perspective. Life is short, judgment will come. And God is sowing good seed. So, so I think historically, if you go to any cathedral in Europe, there are all these paintings and stuff about, about, about judgment and heaven. And that was, if you read history, that was the mindset. You read the plays of Shakespeare. There's judge, it's judgment, judgment. That, that, that was very endemic. I think we live in a culture that's trying to silence the voice of eternity in our midst. People just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. The only thing we have that's close to anything that deals with eternity are the, the spat of zombie movies that I haven't seen. There's a book called The Eclipse of Heaven by a wonderful man who's gone to be with the Lord who taught at Charleston Southern named Chip Conyers. It's entitled The, the Eclipse of Heaven, The Loss of Transcendence and Its Effect on Modern Day Life. 30 years old, it's a good book. But he talks about going to a state park here in our state, and there was a guy taking them through the state park. And part of the state park involved going into a chapel that was an Anglican chapel in the 1700s. And he said, I'm going to read from the book of Common Prayer regarding a funeral service, and so he read from the funeral service, and he talked about the judgment that is coming and the hope of heaven and the reality of hell. And he said as he read those things, he looked up at us who were on the tour, and he winked. He winked. And what he was saying is they believed that in 1730, but we don't believe that today. The eclipse of heaven. December the 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. 2,400 plus American men killed. The next day, Franklin Roosevelt went into the House, combined House and Senate, as he leaned upon the arm of his young son, Jimmy. This man who had been stricken with polio slowly made his way to the microphone with a black armband around his arm in memory of the men who had died. And he said, 
Today or yesterday was the day that will live in infamy. The Japanese Empire had a surprise attack on our forces at Pearl Harbor. And he made this incredible speech to a captive audience. And then he closed with this statement. This was his last paragraph. He says, with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will again, or excuse me, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Close quote. Now, if you go to the World War II Memorial in Washington today, those last four words are left out of that final paragraph. They do the final paragraph, but the last four words are omitted. So help us God. And I don't, maybe they ran out of money. I don't know. But, but I, I think there is there's a movement to, to, to silence the sound of eternity in our hearts. Just as an aside, kind of like when he said we have the confidence in our armed forces, it's interesting when you study this particular part of history. At this time, our armed forces were the 16th largest armed force group in the world behind Romania. The, 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 there, there was really, really no armed forces. But, but when the country saw a common foe and a worthy objective, this country came to life. Did you know that in World War II, this is just an aside, that, that, that Russia had 12 million men under arms? In World War II, England had 4.7 million men under arms. Japan had 6 million. Germany, 10 million. The United States of America had 12 million and 400,000. We had more men under arms than any other country. We went from nothing to that. When you see a common foe and a common purpose, you go for it. That says a lot about the church. A common foe and have a common purpose, you go for it. The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about this issue in the last chapter and section 3, it says this regarding eternity. As Christ would have us be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not what hour the Lord will come. So he says to, to deter men from their sin, we face a judgment, and to give greater consolation to believers as they go uphill and into the wind in adversity and hard times. He would have that day unknown. But there is an eternity awaiting us. And, and, and to shake off all, all carnal security that says it's no big deal. It's a big deal. See, this parable awakens us to a wartime mentality based upon eternity. We have an enemy who snatches the word, who sows weeds among the wheat, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, who is a liar and the father of lies. And we do not have that understanding to our peril. We have, should have, a wartime mentality. Back to December 7th, 1941, there was a senator from Michigan named Arthur Vandenberg who had served for 27 years in the U.S., or served 27 years in the U.S. Senate with distinction. But he was part of a group called America First in 1939 to 1941. America First was a group of people who said, we entered in World War I to make the world safe for democracy. We lost 115,000 men, and Europe was in a more horrendous shape after the war than before the war. We do not want to be entangled with any other foreign alliances. They're called isolationists. 
They said, they said, we've been given two friendly neighbors to the north and the south and two huge oceans. We don't need to be involved. And so they were saying very strongly, no involvement in the European war, no involvement in the Pacific War with the Japanese. Not going to do it. Not going to go there. And Vandenberg was one of the chief spokesmen. In fact, on this day, Pearl Harbor happened on the east coast in the afternoon, morning in Hawaii. On, the, on that particular day, he was sitting at home at a table with his wife, and he was cutting out articles from the newspaper, different newspapers that dealt with isolation and speeches he had made or others had made. And he was putting them into a scrapbook so, so he could refer to it occasionally to refresh his memory. We used to do those things yesterday. You know. and so he's cutting out these, these articles, and, and they had the radio on. All of a sudden, an announcer breaks into the music and says, we have an, a very important announcement to make. The Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor with loss of many, many lives and the loss of many, many vessels. Stay tuned for more information. Vandenberg closed his scrapbook, put it in his closet, and never opened it again. Because from that point forward, he knew that we were at war. So I look at this and I say, do we realize we're at war? Do we realize that there's an enemy? Jesus says three times, the enemy did this. And his name is the devil, who is sowing destruction snatching the word away from us. So this is a very easy parable to explain. Let me run through it. First of all, there are two sowers and there are two results. One sower is the Son of Man who sows the good seed, Jesus, the Word of God that brings forth fruit. The other sower is the devil, the enemy, who sows destruction among the wheat. So, so we used to refer to human beings as, as sinful, as, as broken, Martin Luther had an incredible phrase and said, man is inexplicably curved in upon himself. Self-centered, self-seeking, curved in upon himself. But today we've jettisoned those categories. Now we talk about dysfunctions or pathologies. And, and I fear, church, we are blind to the need that we have for sustaining grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. Until I understand there is warfare and there's an enemy who wants to consume me, drink me down, who, wants to, who, who, who accuses you day and night, who belittles you, who mocks the reality of Christ, until you realize that, then there will be a, a lack of power in your life. I, I fear that. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus makes a statement about People who advocate purity rituals for eating and drinking and washing. This is what he says. This is Mark chapter 7, verse 18. Um, he says, are you guys not, without understanding, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters his heart and goes through his stomach and then it is ex expelled Says you're all concerned about purity. I'm just I thought about this verse this week. My daughter told me that honey grams are not a health food. I didn't know that. Very discouraging to me. I will not give them up though. I've gone this far. I'm going to hit the finish line eating honey grams. Anyway, thus he declared all foods clean, including honey gram. That's not in the text. And he said, 
What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, comes evil thoughts and sexual morality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and slander and pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I need grace. You need grace. Because there's an enemy who wants to sow tears in my heart. There's an enemy who wants to snatch the word from my life, making it ineffectual. In 1991, there was a movie released that was an incredible movie. I'm not necessarily recommending it, but it was powerful. It was called a psychological horror movie entitled Silence of the Lambs. Um, Anthony Hopkins played a psychiatrist named Hannibal Lecter, brilliant man, uh, and Jodie Foster rep- played in, in a wonderful presentation, an FBI agent, but the, the background is that Hannibal Lecter, psychiatrist, brilliant, uh, was a serial killer without offending your sensitivities, was involved in cannibalism. And so there was somebody else loose in the land, and they were trying to capture a like-minded serial killer, and so FBI agent officer Starling was there to interview him and to get information from him. And she meets Hannibal Lecter. And Anthony Hopkins just was just creepy how good he is. And in her first interview, she asked him these questions, and he's just weird. And he answers her. And as she turns to go, she says under her breath, I wonder what made him this way. And Anthony Hopkins gives a statement that is one of the greatest statements about human depravity and sin I've ever heard. This is what he says. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You cannot reduce me to a set of circumstances. Close quote. I happened. It's me. It's it's me. It's not my dysfunctional family primarily. It's not my zip code. It's not this. It's not that. It's me. And I look at that and I go, that's what I need to hear. That's what you need to hear. You see, C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters, says in the very beginning that, that the devil and his minions are equally pleased with a materialist or a magician. A materialist is somebody, very many people around us, says that the only truth is what I can see or reproduce in some type of experiment. There's no eternal dimension. A magician is somebody who sees a demon behind every bush. And says the devil made me do it and, and doesn't understand some of the nuances of life. And, and there's, a, there's a man named Richard Baxter who's a Puritan, died in 1688, and he wrote a little book on spiritual depression. And, and Baxter says, why do, do we have depression? He just mentions four things. He says one re- result of depression is we don't have the right rest and food and we go too hard. This is long before our frenetic pace. So there's a physical manifestation. He says sometimes it's because of broken relationships or lack of love or lack of community. And so there's a psychological element or, or there's a moral failure where, where you just, your life is unraveling or there's the demonic. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, I think they kind of all can be jumbled together. You, you, you're, you're tired and you, you go down and down and down and you go harder and harder and harder and you just physically break down. Or if you lack of, a lack of communitarian love and relationship, you become, you, you burn out on relationships. And so you become, you become bitter and you become indifferent and you become hardened and you become uncaring. It happens all the time. 
Or, or there's a moral failure. And I, I think of the psalmist, David, who says in Psalm 32, when I was in sin, day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. And then I confessed my sin, and you gave me relief. I think of Psalm 51, the aftermath of David's horrendous decision-making involving adultery and murder and deception. He cries out, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Lord, give me back my joy. And I think about all the demonic stuff. Then the devil comes along and he says, you can't be forgiven. You can't be restored. That's a lie. You can't be used. That's a lie. But it's a, and we fight, we fight an adversary who wants to sow wheat in the pure crop of your life. So the second part of number one is this, that, that once I see that, once I understand that we have an adversary who wants to drink us down, once you see that, then, then worship and developing a Christian mind and prayer will be a priority. If, if you don't understand the warfare mentality, the wartime mentality, then worship, community with God's people, thinking Christianly, and prayer will be a nice add-on that's a good thing to do if you want to be known as a mystical, devotional Christian. But, but if you see warfare, and if you see the adversary, who's the accuser, who deceives, who sows, who snatches, then, then worship is a priority. Being with God's people, priority. Thinking Christianly, priority. Prayer, priority. So that's why Tuesday I ask us as the new church year begins and school year begins to have a day of fasting and to come here at 6.30 just to pray. If you want to learn to pray, pray with people who've prayed for years. That's the way you learn to pray. With an open Bible, people who've prayed for years. And when we come together and say, Lord, unless you build the house, we can't do it. Let me, let me tell you this. You will not be able to defeat the darkness that's around you without the empowering presence of the living God. You won't. The Bible teaches that. So two sowers, two results. Now two reactions. Reaction number one is the, the men came and said, said, Master, who did this? He said, the enemy did. He said, do you want us to go out and you want us to, to pull up Pull up the weeds. So what happened is talking about bearded darnel. It's a weed, and it grow, would grow up with the wheat, and it looked just like the wheat until it flowered. Then it became it's just a, a nasty weed. It's not wheat. And, and, and Jesus says, no, don't pull it up, because if you pull up the weeds, you're going to disrupt the wheat. In other words, they're going to grow together. Be patient. If you read this passage, the day of judgment will come, but it's not today. Today is a day of communicating the gospel. Today is a day of communicating the hope of the forgiveness of sin. It's not too late. So instead of pulling them up, he says, I want you to be patient. See, one group reflected uninformed, unbiblical zeal. In Luke chapter 9, there's a section, 10 chapter section about Christ heading to the cross. And it says this, they're going into Jerusalem. They go through Samaria. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews. Jews didn't like the Samaritans. The Samaritans said, we worship here. The Jews said, you only worship in Jerusalem. Okay? So Luke 9, verse 51 says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem, enemy territory. 
And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. These men have been walking with Jesus for three years now. And they've seen him time after time love the unlovable, care for people that were the refuse of their culture. And yet now they have the audacity to say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume these people? And it says, just as Jesus rebuked them, just boom. Uh, just, it's just amazing. He says, no, now's the time for taking the gospel out. We're going to, we've ordained elders and deacons in the first service for our church. And when I look at the passage in 1 Timothy 3 about deacons and elders, office holders, it really basically says many things, but it says they're to be peace-loving, non-disruptive, gracious men who tenderly love their wives and love their family members or kids and have a good reputation with outsiders. I go, time and again, I'll go through and I'll say, really, it talks about just being kind. And so I'll read this, and then I go to Romans 12, which is so counter. I read Romans 12 and go, ah, this is so counterintuitive. He's been talking about the grace of the cross, and chapter 12 is an application point. And he says, just listen to these verses. This is just crazy. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If it's possible, be at peace with all men. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Burning coals of conviction, I think. But you, you don't curse those who curse you. You bless them. You, you pray for your enemies. I'm going, this is unbelievable. Patience. The day of judgment will come. But right now, it's a day of patience, loving, graciously committing, and talking to people about the goodness of the kingdom. There's a book entitled Being Human. It was written 30 years ago. It's a good book by two British authors. Macaulay and Bars, and, and it says that, that every life, they're believers, every life has organizing principles or, 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 or controlling principles. And one of the organizing principles in life of a child of God is this, all men and women and boys and girls are made in the image of God, and they're worthy of respect and Christian love. That's an organizing principle. That's where we start, no matter their wealth, or if they have special needs, or if they live in your ethnocentric group, or if they do this or they do that, all people, all people. It's an amazing statement. It's a true statement. And I think of the statement in 2 Timothy 2 that talks about the Lord's bondservant, verse 24, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, if perhaps God may grant them the repentance that leads to the knowledge of God. Be patient. Just be patient. And part of patience is realizing that, that as we speak to people and as we communicate Scripture, that God 
has to open eyes to see the beauty. See, God opens eyes as the gospel's preached. There, there's, a, there's a synergistic moment where, where people hear the word and the Holy Spirit works. So we're, our responsibility is to speak the truth. God works in hearts. This is clearly seen in Matthew 11, this great gospel invitation where Jesus says, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden. But before that, he says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And I read that and I go, it's, it's the glorious, mysterious doctrine of election. The God works in human hearts. And so if God works in human hearts, then, then my responsibility is to speak the gospel, to speak the word, and to love people with patience. There, there's a man named William Wilberforce, one of my heroes. He died about 1837. He's from Great Britain. He worked for 30-some years to see slavery eradicated from Great Britain. Uh, a brilliant man. Brilliant man. His best friend was a man named William Pitt. William Pitt had a dad named William Pitt the Elder, who was prime minister and who, along with Edmund Burke, was opposed to British intervention in the American War of Independence. In fact, he was such an outspoken proponent of the colonies that in Boston he was declared an honorary son of liberty, William Pitt the Elder. He dies. His son went to Oxford. Brilliant, becomes, listen, becomes Prime Minister of England at the age of 24. 24. His best friend was William Wilberforce, who had come to faith in Christ and loved the gospel and was involved with a group called the Clapham Sect that worked for morality in England and the eradication of slavery as the gospel is preached. Bold, gracious, godly man. So he longed for his friend to come to faith, William Pitt. And so there's a man named John Newton who's 30 years older who was William Wilberforce's spiritual mentor. John Newton wrote to him, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. John Newton, a former slave trader who came to faith in Christ. And so William Wilberforce asked his friend William Pitt, Will you go with me to church this week to hear John Newton, one of my spiritual mentors, speak? And his friend said, Yes. William Pitt said, I'll go with you. So, so they went to church, and John Newton stood up, and William Wilberforce said he preached the gospel of grace. And the whole time he sat, he was sitting there going, yes, he's, he's hearing the gospel. It's glorious. It's wonderful. He's hearing about Christ crucified and the forgiveness of sins only through the work of the cross. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. So the service closed, and they leave. And William Wilberforce, with great hope and with incredible joy, says to his friend, what did you think? And William Wilberforce, honor graduate from Oxford, prime minister at age 24, looked at Wilberforce and said, my dear Wilberforce, what was he so excited about? Wilberforce goes, oh, great. I, I, I just say to you, God opens minds. We get the word. And as I think about that, we, we had a, something a, 
Easter before last, God, who are your three? Or your one or your two? But who are your three? The three people in your family, neighborhood, coworkers, friends that you're praying for that they would come to see the beauty of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. See, every one of us should have people that we're praying for if we believe the gospel. And we should be thinking about ways to be friends. Who are your three? If they live outside, outside of this area, are you communicating with them? Just sending them emails or, or calling. If they live locally, are you opening your home to them in hospitality? And in all ways, are you praying for them? Who, who are your people in your life? That's what we should be about, church. I, I read this and I say, man, God, let me live with an eternal perspective in the way I, I live, in the way I handle my, my money, my time, my, my, my resources. May I be patient, patient with people. May one of the controlling principles of my life be men and women made in the image of God. And, and I say this to you in the midst of this political campaign that's coming on us. Do not take your cues and how to relate to people from many of our leaders. There are two people that are running for a high office and running for president. I just said running for president who has said openly they would like to take the president out behind a, a building and beat him up. I mean, I thought, are we in junior high? And then, quite honestly, the president sometimes tweets on the level of a fifth grader who's angry. And I'm thinking, you know, don't take your cues. I mean, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You speak with gentleness. Colossians 4, let your speech always be with grace. What happened? We are people who, because of Jesus, practice the art of gracious civility. Because people are made in the image of God. There's an article in World Magazine, a good magazine that you ought to get. The author is Joel Bells, and he talks about five rules for outrage. Let me just read them to you. He says that as an editor, he gets a lot of letters from people that just steam him. And he says, sometimes I want to publish them and say, see what I put up with, but then I step back and here are my five rules. Number one, no, quote, he hit me first, close quote, excuses. He said, if you receive a hostile letter, you don't respond in kind. A hostile phone call, you don't respond in time. Kind because incivility and below-the-belt punches are off-limits if you're a follower of Christ. Number two, facts first, then opinion. He says, deal with the facts. When you start treating facts and opinions as if they were interchangeable, you're in trouble. When I read that, I thought about a guy named Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was senator from New York. Democrat senator in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And Daniel Moynihan said, you are entitled to your opinion, but you are not entitled to your facts. So you have your own opinion, but you can't make up your own facts. Number three, use lowered voices. Don't scream. Don't rant. Don't rave. Quiet power is always impressive. Number four, elusive answers. In other words, he says, there's some things that I'm dead-centered certain about, but there are other things where I can have an open mind. And number five, always, always esteem others. The Bible repeatedly tells Christians to think of each other as better than themselves. Philippians 2, it doesn't go that far in telling us how to relate to non-Christians, but tells us to have a high regard even for those who despitefully use you. I just read that thought. 
We should live that way. And third, the next issue, there are two destinies. There are two destinies. There will be a time when it is harvest time, where people without Christ will be without him forever, in a place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Question 52, the last question, New City Catechism says, what hope does everlasting life hold for us? Answer reminds us that this present fallen world is not all there is. Soon we will live with joy and enjoy God forever in the new city, in the new heaven, and in the new earth where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed, restored creation. Dear brothers and sisters, let us live with eternity. Let us love others in the name of Christ, realizing that there is an eternity that awaits us. As we go into the wind, sometimes uphill, a great day is coming. See, the, the gospel of grace is so glorious. And there are people, be people here today in this room and in the worship center. Um, maybe they're here for the first time, second time, third time, whatever. That you still operate on the basis of merit. That's not the gospel. See, some people look at the gospel as being merit-based, it's like getting into an elite university. If you get into an elite university, number one, you must have either one, merit, you must have incredible test scores. I'm amazed at the number of people who make 1,600 on the SAT. It's amazing. You must have great test scores. You must graduate in the top 0.5 percentile of your graduating class. You must have a CV of activities that seem to have only been able to be attained by a 40-year-old, much less an 18-year-old. Or you must have family heritage. If you have, if there's a building on your elite school you want to go to that has the last name that you bear, it may go well with you in getting in. Or thirdly, we've seen this recently, maybe sometimes if you give a large financial gift to an elite university, you get in. That's the way we think. It's either my merit my family heritage, or what I can give or don't give or do or don't do. That's the way we live. But the gospel of grace says this. We get in the kingdom on merit, but it's the merit of Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life, the eternal God, and died on the cross for my sin and rose victorious over death. If you've never understood that fully, I plead with you to think about that. We get in heaven based upon a family heritage. But it's a family heritage that says, before time began, God in his triune glory loved his people and he's adopted us into his family, undeserving children that we are. We get in because of his riches. Riches. Behold the wonder of the gospel of grace. So I, I say to you, I say to me, let us live with an eternal perspective. Now, we're going to pray now for the following people who are being ordained today to be deacons and elders. Let me, let me say this, that, that the spiritual level of a, of a church will not rise above the level of those in leadership. It just won't. So this is a very important moment. So I'm just going to read the names and we're going to pray. Those being ordained as deacons, Eddie Hudson. Michael Janaski, Mitch Jones, 
John Cornegie, Derek Mathis, Kent Patrick, Jim Taylor, Paul Bueller, Ken Betancourt, Christopher Coosdale, Joe Weston, elders, Michael Blakely, Scott Gardner, Thomas Grooms, David Preston, Brian Ralph, Bob Tennyson, Derek Walden, Josh Watson, Mike Weeks, Alan Wilson, Joey Fadol, Doug Hunter, Ron Kessinger. Well, let's, let's pray for these. Just stand here and in the worship center. Let's just pray for these. Just stand, please. Let's pray. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you forgive us for so often entering into responsibilities with a somewhat cavalier fashion in our hearts. And Lord, I, I say with great passion and belief that these brothers cannot do what you've asked them to do apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. When, when you say that those who want to be deacons or elders aspire to a good, a good place, we thank you for that. But when you say that they must be men who are sober-minded, sober-minded in a culture that calls out <clears throat> repeatedly that, that we give great thought to those things that aren't important. It's tough. When you say that they must not be quick-tempered, that they must have a passionate, enduring love for their wives, and they must organize and rule their children well, and they must have a reputation with outsiders that is good, and they must be above reproach, which means there's no sin that is obvious that's unrepented of. Lord, we cannot do this apart from you. So we say loudly, and we say with heartfelt feeling that, God, unless you equip us and teach us and empower us, we cannot do it. You, you, we say as a congregation that we cannot be the people of God you've called us to be unless you work in our lives. So God, have mercy upon us. And, and, and God, help us to walk with the realization that there is an adversary who wants to sow weeds of destruction in our lives, who wants to snatch the word from us, Help us to realize that we are in, in need of daily grace. So, so God, have mercy upon us. And let us be the salt and the light to those around us. And let us go forward and be the people of God. We plead for your mercy and empowerment upon these brothers and upon us. Come, Holy Spirit, with fresh anointing grace. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.